I'm Stephen. And I'm Kevin. And in today's episode of The Stephen and Kevin Show, we talk about the future of paying for financial advice with special guest Michael Kitsis. And the best $200 you ever spent on New Year's. All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode 12 of the Stephen and Kevin Show. Again, thank you to everybody who asked us a question on Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag AskStephenAndKevin. And you're in for a treat today. We've got a special guest in Michael Kitsis today. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Michael Kitsis is dropping in today. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Michael Kitsis, well, first off, I think you might be living under a rock. <laughs> Super popular guy here. Uh, he's the director of research for Pinnacle Advisory Group. He's co-founder of XY Planning Network and New Planner Recruiting. We're going to talk a little bit about XY Planning Network today. And he's the blogger behind the super popular Nerd's Eye View. And uh, that's just a few things. I know he speaks all over the country. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, and I know we could go in one of a hundred different directions today, and maybe we'll go in a few different directions. But we're, we would like to start with just uh, your insights on the the future of how advisors get paid. You've written a number of pieces on this that we find fascinating, talking about retainers versus hourly versus asset based, and uh, would love your perspective for our listeners today. So it's an interesting dynamic with with advisor compensation. I, I've been writing about this theme for a couple of years now that. Uh, that I, I've dubbed the crisis of differentiation, which I, I think is this recognition that as more and more people become advisors and start doing financial planning, uh, you know, more and more people who historically were investment sales folks, stockbrokers, insurance agents are all doing financial planning, investment-only firms are increasingly adding wealth management. More and more of us are doing this advice thing and suddenly we don't look that different from each other. And on top of that, just the number of consumers that are not attached to an advisor is continuing to decline, particularly in the higher net worth space, right? Like affluent folks who have an advisor tend to have kind of found one at this point since advice has been growing so long. And so the net effect of that across the industry that I'm, I've been finding at the grassroots level for a couple of years now, uh, most advisors' growth rates are slowing. Uh, every now and then there's someone that's a standout and it's growing. They've got some you know, marketing process or niche that's working well for them. But by what I'm finding, most advisors' growth rates are slowing, especially if you strip out the tailwind we get from market growth over the past couple of years. And so as we all hunt for differentiation, you know, some of us go look for niches and specialization. Some of us try to figure out how to rebrand our firms. But one of the areas where uh, this sort of crisis of differentiation is cropping up our advisors try to come forward and say, well, maybe I need to have a different business model, a different price structure so that I can differentiate on pricing and cost and how I deliver my services and how I get paid for my services. And so we've seen this kind of uprising, particularly over the past year or two, of, hey, is there a different business model out there that we should be using aside from maybe commissions for those of us who are still there that may get limited with Department of Labor uh, fiduciary rules soon anyways, right. and then is, you know, are we already at the beginning of the end of AUM between the fact that so many people are doing it, all this technology that's now automating some pieces of AUM, and so this conversation has been starting to bubble up of maybe it's time for the next business model and what does the next business model look like? Yeah, and, and to your point, I think the uh, the generations being left 
left out in this are the millennials and Gen Xers who, mm-hmm. uh, as you've written about, Michael, don't have quite the assets that make sense for an AUM-based model. Uh, and, and so it, Correct. It, it's an industry at odds with, with one of its main missions right now. It, the main, one of the main missions is go younger, bring in younger clientele, Next except for gen. so yep. many are, are not so much built out for that. Yeah, so I, there's a couple of interesting dynamics to me at, at, at work and at that. You know, when I when I actually talk to the average advisor, like how anxious are you about going down the next generation? I actually don't see a lot of anxiety out there. No, uh, and and just if you if you kind of run the numbers, I mean, I actually wrote an article about this a couple of years ago that that basically said all this obsession with going after your clients' kids, I think, is a terrible business strategy for the average advisor, and and the reason is simply. If you actually look at how old most of our clients are, even if we're pretty squarely working with retiree baby boomers, they're in their 60s. <laughs> All right, our life expectancy has gotten pretty darn good here, and of course the money doesn't go to the kids until both of them pass away, not just one of a married couple. And the joint life expectancy of a healthy, affluent married couple right now that starts out in their mid-60s is 20 to 25 years, maybe 30 years if you apply some of the age adjustment factors that the actuaries are projecting, which is a nice way of saying – you will probably retire before most of your clients actually pass away and leave money to the next generation anyways. Yeah, and so how, if, you're trying to, if you're trying to get your clients' kids because you're trying to chase the money down the line, it, it's probably not actually a very productive strategy. It's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to play out way too slowly to actually be relevant for you. Now, I find a lot of the companies that serve us as advisors are kind of terrified of this. So if you're a custodian or you're a broker-dealer, you're kind of worried about this because while any one individual advisor doesn't necessarily lose enough clients with the generational shift to occur, uh, in the aggregate, if you're a custodian or a broker-dealer, the net flows that are going to transition are, are more material. And what, frankly, what to me, when you look at the dynamics out there of who's actually pounding the table to say you have to go after the next generation of clients, it's not advisors. It's the companies who serve us because they're terrified that the generational shift means they're being left out of the picture, and they're pushing on us as advisors to go down the chain to get their next generation of clients, not our next generation of clients. They want it to get their next generation of clients. That's yeah, interesting, interesting it, stuff. Go ahead. And I think it's, it's frustrating to those of us who are next-gen in age, millennials or Gen Xers, yeah. to hear the industry focus on being uh, more so the client's kids, which I, I think there's, there's certain merit in bringing them on. For, for the sake of uh, managing the client relationship properly, uh, but, but focusing so much on that and less on just Gen X and millennial investors as a group, uh, regardless of parent, parental assets, uh, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, to me, all it really, you know, when you chase it down the line, what you're really saying is my client is not my client. My client is the pot of money, and I just want to manage the pot of money, whoever the, hap- whoever the legal owner happens to be at the time, which – I think it's not, not a particularly good way to run a business and not a particularly good way to, to serve clients. And, and, it, and it misses what I think is, is the point you're, you're mentioning and, and you know, certainly is, is where my passion is, which is how about we actually look at serving younger people, not because we're trying to chase a pot of money that someday they might inherit, but because we just actually want to do something that's valuable and useful and relevant for them from the financial planning perspective in a world where what financial planning, I'm using air quotes we can't see here, what financial (laughs) planning means for a Gen Xer or a millennial is very different than what it means for a baby boomer because they're in a different stage of life, they're at a different stage of wealth and income accumulation. They've got different financial priorities, you know, retirement versus kids in college and career advancement and all those dynamics. 
and they just fundamentally need different advice with a different focus and a different expertise and they're going to have to pay for it differently because you're simply not going to serve that audience on a AUM basis because they either A, don't have assets available to manage, or B, even if they do have assets uh, that hypothetically could be managed, they're tied up someplace like a 401k plan where given just the infrastructure of how managed assets work for advisors, you're not going to actually take over that and do discretionary management and get paid an AUM fee on that in the in the traditional industry sense. And so... You know, I view working with Xers and Millennials as a, as a huge financial planning business opportunity, frankly, a, a pretty much a giant untapped wide open blue ocean of opportunity, but you don't do it because you're chasing a pot of money and you don't do it because you're going to run an existing AUM model that doesn't fit them. It necessitates a different service model that's relevant for them with a different business model that actually fits with what it is that they, they can pay what it is that they can afford and how they can engage. Yeah, and something that they're used to, right? I mean, in terms of, and you reference it in the article, and I like it, and we're, we're so used to, as a younger younger generation, paying a monthly subscription for something, right? I mean, whether it's my, my Netflix or my gym membership, whatever it might be, we get that type of model. And, that, I mean, that leads us right to this retainer-style um, model, Michael. And can you kind of outline how you see that working, this retainer-style model? Yeah, so... You know, the, the model that I've kind of advocated as is, is what I think is the future for serving this segment is, is what I think in the industry we would call a monthly retainer model. Mm-hmm. Frankly, how I would and, and do explain it to consumers is it's financial planning for a monthly subscription fee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we join Netflix and pay X dollars a month to get access to our uh, streaming movies. We pay X dollars a month to... Uh, have usage of our cell phone. We pay X dollars a month to go to the gym as much as we want to, and we may use it a lot or a little. Gyms work because it averages out. Some people utilize a lot and some people don't. Mm -hmm. And you can run the same business model as a financial advisor. So you go out to folks and you say, look, here's here's the set of services that I provide. I actually advocate making a client service calendar that explains exactly what you are and are not going to do throughout the year. You know, we'll have this many meetings. I consult on these issues. I don't help you on these other issues. Uh, you know, if you're going to have kind of a an open retainer agreement like that, it's it's important to define the scope of the engagement, mm-hmm. and then you roll that out as a service offering to clients to younger folks on an ongoing monthly pay basis. And what we see happening with that dynamic, like it it, it works for a couple of reasons. One, just when you get into younger folks today, we we're used to paying everything off like the credit card or bank account on a monthly basis, right? Like just what, some what, auto draft. You know, yep. the, Right, like blank as a service has basically been the dominant growth business model for the past 15 years in pretty much every industry except financial advising. And actually even in the advisor context, the biggest growth in the biggest growth channel in our industry for the past 15 years has been financial planning as a service. We've just done it attached to an AUM model. You know, you offer financial planning while you're managing assets. Right. And so if they don't have assets, you can still do financial planning as a service model. You just need a different sort of billing and payment structure to it, you can't scrape AUM fees off a pool of money. You need to do a monthly bill to a uh, a credit card or a bank account. And, you know, what we find in practice just we're used to paying everything else on monthly, so, you know, having another bill that hits the, the statement every month is not a big deal. It smooths out the cost, you know, for a lot of folks, particularly those that don't necessarily have a ton of savings already, like, you know, if you're going to charge them a couple grand a year because they have to write a check for a couple thousand dollars once a year, you're going to create a cash flow problem for them because, like, I can pay the 200 bucks a month, 
but I can't write a check for $2,500 once a year. I don't, I don't keep that much money sitting around just to write your bill if I'm a young person that's you know, enjoying my lifestyle. So I can budget around a monthly cost. It's much harder to budget around a big lump sum annual cost. So yeah, we plus, find plus the perception there, right? I mean, the perception of writing a big check versus the, you know, if I had to pay all my Netflix, you know, for, for two years in advance, eh, not, not as uh, easy to, how bad do we want to watch these? Oh, shows? very, right. very true. Like there's, you know, I, I think sometimes we don't, we, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> pardon me. I think sometimes we don't like to admit this reality, but the truth is that there's a lot of very powerful psychology that happens in how business models are priced and presented. Mm -hmm. The way people pay, the mechanism by which they get billed, how those prices get surfaced to them. And not that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for full transparency in business models. It actually drives me nuts that most of us advisors don't even put our pricing on our websites. You wouldn't even know what the pricing is. We're, we're horrifically opaque about it. So this isn't about hiding pricing. You can you know, plaster out there on your website, hey, we charge 150 bucks a month and here are the services that we provide. But put it out there on a monthly basis and the psychology is just completely different than on an annual basis. And auto bill it from their bank account is a completely different psychology than write a check right. on a regular, you know, where you have to actually pull out your checkbook and write a check and, and mail it or hand it over. Mm -hmm. So the psychology is powerful here as well. And we find that automating payments on a monthly basis in a billing structure is is incredibly effective as a means to do it and and like we're not we're not inventing auto bill pay for a service right like again this has been a a dominant growth model across most industries over the past 10 to 15 years we're just now seeing it uh, translate over to financial advisors for the first time and and for a young advisor serving a young client this gets incredibly appealing I mean the math gets really simple you you know you're going to try to work with Clients at 150 bucks a month. That's uh, $1,800 a year. You work with 100 clients. You're making uh, $180,000 a year of gross revenue. There's there's no products. You don't need a broker dealer relationship. There's actually no investment assets. You don't even need a custodian and all the investment infrastructure and the scrape of those costs. Hmm. And so what we see for a lot of advisors that are running this model within our XY planning network, you know, they they can do these kinds of revenue numbers and and they you know they keep like. 90% of their revenue comes straight to the bottom line once you uh, sort of scale through just the, the, the hard costs of, well, being, being in our network, which is a couple hundred dollars a month for ours, tools and services, you know, buying the sort of core technology you need to run your practice and, and just some, some basic stuff like that. So they, they become incredibly profitable business models. Now, ultimately, if your goal as an advisor is like, I want to figure out how to make a half a million dollars a year, you're not going to do that in this model. I mean, just in general, you're not going to do that by working with millennials who don't have a huge well, amount right. of income and assets. <laughs> right. But, yeah, if you're, you know, but, but you know, making $180,000 a year serving millennials as a young advisor means you're making like three to four times the national median income. You're making a income that's about 50% higher than even the average advisor out there. And you've got it with an incredibly simple, straightforward business model that serves your clients well, has very limited overhead, and and that you can run and execute yourself or with uh, you know a little bit of, of help. So it's it's you know we're seeing lots of growth in this. Uh, you know we kind of we did we decided we wanted to champion this model with XY Planning Networks. Like literally, this is what we do. We uh, we're a network of advisors that are doing this monthly retainer model for Gen X and Gen Y clients, and we give them the 
the compliance help to start their RIAs and all the tools and technology that they need because you need a you need a payment billing system and you need a CRM system and you need sure. planning software that's relevant for young clients. So we we kind of bundle all that in and and you know the the interest in it has just been overwhelming. You know, we've had almost two hundred advisors uh, leave their old RIAs or their old broker dealers, their old insurance companies to start a brand new business doing this model. Uh, almost 200 advisors in in uh, under two years since we launched the network, and and the and the growth rate's just accelerating. It's great. Yeah, I think it's fantastic growth, and and it's you know I think the growth comes from the fact that it's consumer driven. You have consumers who are looking for this type of an approach that's mm-hmm. simple and manageable. And I can think back, uh, you know, twice in the last month, literally twice in the last 30 days, I've had friends come to me who say I'm looking for an advisor. Uh, I don't have a lot of assets to put with them currently. Uh, but I'd like some help in planning and making some fairly large decisions. Do you know who you'd recommend for something like that? Mm-hmm. And when you yeah, look across the industry and through most of the channels, there are very few people who uh, that that's a really effective client for. Very few, right? Like at least for a couple of advisors that are on broker-dealer side, will say something effective. Yeah, I guess I'll take them. I'll put them in something where I earn a decent commission, so it's not a total loss to me. But like, right. I mean, we even have a euphemism for it in the industry. We call them accommodation clients. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah. It, it, I don't it, actually want you, but I'll accommodate oh, you. That's, yeah, that's sell you something true. where I can make a little bit of money, and like, just thought I it. You know, as 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 a consumer of finance service as well, like this drives me nuts. Like saying you'll take someone as an accommodation client is an insult to the client. Like, well, and it's don't the take same someone with across the industry. Someone because you're excited to serve them. If you're not, help them go to someone that actually is excited to serve them, and will give them the level level of service that they deserve. Because not all of us serve the same people, and and like and that's okay. You know, I serve my clients. You serve your clients. You got your specialization. I got mine. And, you know, both of our clients benefit when we cross-refer to each other people who are the actual right fit for the advisor and the business model as opposed to taking each other's clients as, as accommodation clients that doesn't serve the client well. Yeah, what, what about the idea of charging hourly, Michael? Because I know you addressed it in the article. I'd love your, your input on that as well. Yeah, I – you know, so again, this to me is, is sort of an issue around consumer psychology and business models. You know, I, I, I love a lot of the hour, hourly planning folks and, and what – uh, Cheryl Garrett did with the Garrett Flying Network. My challenge to it, though, from like from just the business model end, like mm-hmm. as an advisor trying to build a business, hourly is very hard to build a business around, and and sort of a couple of core reasons. One, ironically, it's it's very similar to the commission model in that it's extremely transactional. So the problem with the hourly model, like the commission model, is when you wake up on January first to start your year, you have no revenue until you either go find new clients or go back to old clients to sell them something again, whether you're going to sell them a new product or you're going to sell them a couple more hours of your advice to uh, uh, you know, to do a renewal plan. But you, know, you wake up every January 1st with no revenue and no clients until you go out there and find some from either new clients, existing clients, or, or referrals. Mm-hmm. And that's just challenging. You can make a decent living at that. Obviously, many people have, but you can only go so far. And it's particularly hard when you do this in the context of an hourly model because the amount of revenue you make per client is just not that high, right? If I average two or three hours of work per client that I get paid for on a billable hours basis, I'm making a couple hundred dollars per client. If I actually want to bill out a thousand hours for the year so I can make uh, make my income for the year, well, if I'm only doing two or three cl- hours per client, like I need three to five hundred clients 
to make an hourly model work at a nice income level. And most of us in any of the channels have no idea how to get three to five hundred clients a year, right? For a lot of advisors, like you know, one a month is an awesome, is, right. is awesome progress. So <laughs> the, the hourly model ends up, I, I find in practice, just knowing so many advisors that have done it, it tends to get strangulated on this business development challenge of how do I get a sufficient volume of people in order to make this work in a model where you know, clients, you know, no one likes being on the clock in pretty much any industry, financial planning, accounting, lawyers, right? Like anytime we work with someone on the clock, we always try to minimize our problems and only call them in a crisis. Exactly. And so I find a lot of hourly planners, it's transactional. They never know where their clients are going to come from, and they only work with people in crisis because only crisis people seek out, well, not only, but often it's the crisis people who seek out the advisor at the point of crisis, which frankly, just for a lot of advisors, is not actually very pleasant work to do because you, no. you don't get to do the, the progress stuff. You get to do the let's dig out of a catastrophe that would have been a catastrophe if you called me six months ago, but you didn't, so now here we are. And I'll be back and, to you at the next catastrophe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. and, you know, part and, of, and that's the only time clients come back. Relationship. Is, that if you're, yeah, if you're an advisor working with clients, part of what you like to do is to sit down with your clients and help them make educated right. decisions and be able to converse with them to get at the real needs they're coming with. Not so much feeling right. like, I mean, nobody really enjoys being on the phone with their attorney because you're watching the clock the entire time. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering, right. hold on, and are they responding to this email right now and charging me for this? Yeah. You know, it's just a lot of negative feelings. So, yeah, whereas when you do this on a monthly retainer basis, the, all, the, all the psychology turns around. So now, you know, by default, you're in. You're going to continue to be a client. You're already paying for it. You have to go through the extra work to fire me, which most people don't want to do. It's the same reason AUM is a sticky business model. But now clients are defaulted in. They're already paying for it. So now the client psychology is like, well, geez, I'm already paying for it. I'm basically wasting my money if I don't call my financial planner and ask them questions. So the client is incentivized to contact the planner and engage in the planning process because they've already paid for it so they want to get their value, then when they engage in the planning process, they get more out of financial planning and then they become happier clients because they're using financial planning and getting its beneficial effects. And now you get this positive virtuous loop. So with the hourly model, I don't call unless it's a crisis and then when I call when it's a crisis, usually you can't even solve my problem because it's already a crisis and I screwed up. When I'm in a monthly retainer model, by default, I'm a client. I want to use the services because I'm already paying for them. The more I use them, the better my financial life is, the more I actually value that I've got this engagement, and now I really want to keep it around. And so just that, that kind of consumer psychology effect and the dynamics of transactional versus recurring revenue relationship-based models just, just have a very different implications from the business model perspective. So you know, I, I think there's a lot more opportunity on that, and including that eventually – you know, we expect to see a lot of our uh, uh, monthly retainer planners in XY Planning Network actually start to scale their businesses, right? Because when you get to the point where you've actually got 100 clients that are paying 150 bucks a month and there's $180,000 a year of revenue, you as a business owner can hire an advisor, another advisor, to service those people. They're all existing clients. It's, this person doesn't have to go out and get new ones. They just have to do awesome financial planning for the existing clients. As a business owner, I can pay that person a lot less than $180,000 to just do awesome service work for 100 clients I'm going to hand them. And now I've actually got a business with margin. I'm making profit as a business owner. I can go out and get another 100 clients and do the same thing. And I can't do that in an hourly transactional model because I never know if I'm going to have enough revenue to pay my staff member next year unless I go out and continuously hunt for more new clients. Mm. With a recurring revenue model, you actually can begin to, to grow and scale it. And we're seeing that happen already with some of the 
early advisors that have been adopters of the model that are a couple of years into it and hitting these numbers of 100, 150,000, 200,000 plus of revenue and are starting to hire out associate advisors to service clients and begin to scale, you know, begin to scale a model for millennials in a world where the rest of the industry will still insist you can't even make any money off of them. And what we actually see is not only can you serve them profitably, but you can even begin to scale a business off of them. You're not going to make half a million bucks a year like you can maybe working with ultra-wealthy folks, but not everybody gets to work with ultra-wealthy folks. There aren't enough ultra-wealthy folks for the number of advisors we have. So if you want to go where there's actually opportunity, like this is where we're seeing the opportunity in large part because so few others in the industry have taken any time or effort to service them. That's right. Michael, I love your passion on this. I think there's probably a lot of people out there hearing this, if not for the first time, they're hearing it in a different way. And I'm sure it resonates with a lot of folks for how they can go out and service millennials and Gen Xers. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. You bet. So the next question for the show today actually came from one of Stephen's coaching clients. And the question was, what are some ways to surprise and delight clients over New Year's? Yeah, I, I, I like the question. And uh, so many people put thoughts into holiday gifts, right? And they miss out on New Year's. And I love the idea of forced accountability. Forced accountability. Forced, what is, that what sounds is that terrible, mean? doesn't it? Well, <laughs> you know, like, for example, when, uh, you know, we still do sell a lot of financial organizers, right? Mm-hmm. I'd sell, sell somebody, buy 25 of these, not because I personally want to sell you 25, even though it's great business, uh, but I want them sitting in your office so that you have to get out and use these with your clients. So you feel bad about yourself if you're staring at they're these just, organizers and thinking, They're sitting there as right. a visual reminder that you have fallen off the mark of getting these out to 25 clients, right? Mm-hmm. So here's how the 200 bucks plays in, rough math. Yep. You buy a case of champagne. Mm-hmm. And you call clients until you have 12 takers on these bottles of champagne. The call is very simple. Kevin, hey, I was thinking about you. I got some, some fine champagne here. I uh, was uh, thinking you and your friends getting together might enjoy it. Can I drop a bottle off? And it's way more than you can drink on your own, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. no, no, I like, no, I love it because you're sitting there with all the champagne. What about um, giving them some champagne flutes that go along with it Ooh, too? Very nice. Nice little, very uh, nice. nice little touch. Um, I like that. It's a nice personalized gift. Surprise and delight. We love that. Um, it's going to create some good buzz as well. Yeah, and if you're looking for a free option, just place a phone call in after Christmas time just to say hello, see how their Christmas holiday was, see how Hanukkah was. Ask what they're doing for New Year's. You might uncover, they probably aren't spending it alone. You might uncover the fact that they're either babysitting the grandkids or they're going out socially somewhere. You'll probably get some good info. Hey, we have a podcast rolling on iTunes. Make sure you check that out. If you have a question for the show, use hashtag AskSteven and Kevin. You can use it on Twitter. You can use it on Instagram. We'd love to feature one of your questions for the show.